Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Chris Terry, the author of Black Card and Zero Fade. Chris also played in legendary Richmond, Virginia band Light the Fuse and Run, as well as Flesh Eating Creeps. Weirdly enough, we didn't talk about any of those bands. Okay, so today we talked about the 2006 album Donuts by Jay Dilla. Had a blast digging into the album with Chris. Please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. A little self-promotion, if I may. I'm doing another podcast called Jorts Center, and it's truly just me bullshitting about current events with some longtime friends. If the thought of that piques your interest, please check it out. Well, enough of me. Let's talk with Chris Terry. Are you vegan, or do you simply enjoy good food delivered straight to your door? Then you should probably check out Nourish. Nourish offers culturally diverse, gluten-free, organic vegan food for meal delivery and catering, all while enriching their community, employees, and our planet. If you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can find them at nourishcharlotte.com. If you're in the New York area, check out nourishdelivered.nyc. Nourish yourself. You deserve it. Hi, Chris. How's it going? I'm doing good. How are you, Josh? Good. Good. And what you been up to? Um, I'm, I'm at home alone with my six-year-old right now. So it's been, we've been playing a game called Beyblades, where we like spin these tops at each other and they explode. And um, listening to Musical Youth, Past the Duchy a lot. He loves that album. Uh, and waking up at 5.30 so I can get a bunch of work done before I have to give him breakfast. So that's about, uh, that's how I'm rolling these days. And are, you're still in uh, Los Angeles? I am. Yeah, I've been in Los Angeles since 2013. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess, well, today we are talking about Jay Dilla's 2006 album, Donuts. Um, so what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard this record? 2006. Okay. Um, yeah, I was like 26 going on 27, and I lived in New York. Uh and I was, you know, I've always been a music geek. I think my friend Mike might have told me to check this one out. Um, it's like a guy that I grew up with. And he's more of like a kind of hip hop crate digger type of dude. Um, you know, the type of guy that like knows the sample in a rap song and then already yeah. has the record. Um, and he's like, this is, this, is, this is a big deal. You should check this one out. Um, I downloaded it. I think I had Soul Seek on my computer. If that's a bit of a flashback for like shady ways we used to get music 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think I had like a CDR of it and was listening on my like, you know, first generation iPod type of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I first heard it around then. And I remember it seemed really, really dense at first, but it turned into one of those albums where like I looked up, I don't know, seven or eight years later and was like, man, I've been listening to this on a regular basis for almost a decade. Like it's kind of part of my life. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of a record. Like I've had friends that really like Jay Dilla but with, with this type of thing like I feel like it's like an investment like to be like one of those like great diggers 
you know, it's like, I feel like I've invested that time in like other facets of music. And I know that I like this, you know, type, mm -hmm. but it's like, even like when I had to talk to someone about like Freddie Gibbs, it's like, I know I like this. It just feel, it kind of just feels like if I really need, if I really need to learn about this, it's potentially going to take years, you know, or it's going to, it's going to change the trajectory of my life, which might be <laughs> totally positive, but you know, it's like, it's, it almost feels like almost like getting into like techno, you know? Sure. Just, just know? like a, a no, whole, you know. like a whole, you're like a whole iceberg. Yeah. The thing and, that worked for me, I, I, I used to make like a, myself mix CDs. We're still in the, you know, mid two thousands here. And I just picked like one track that I liked and put that on the mix for that month or those couple of weeks or whatever. Um, and I found that it sometimes served as like a good kind of bridge between like a, a hip hop song and then I, some, something weirder, like some obscure soul or even like the right type of kind, maybe psychedelic rock or garage punk or something. And so I kind of thought of it as this transitional music and was just, you know, going and picking one track and really getting my head inside of that. And that kind of created, I think there's, there's about 30 different tracks on the album, but that created kind of, I don't know, goalposts or sig mar mile markers or something. Um, to help me find my way through the album, uh, yeah. if, if that makes sense, like finding yeah. those, you know, five or six tracks that, that that I can listen for, that I can recognize, that help orient me once I get kind of out there listening to it. Yeah, it kind of made me, it has, it has 31 tracks, so that made me think a little about, like, early Guided by Voices, in a way, okay. where it's like, you almost don't, it's like, almost best not to think of it as, like, one song. It's like, a passage of a few songs like a suite of songs that you know will kind of create a feeling like it's it's definitely more so on this record on donuts than guided by voices but that's like a good way to think about it but yeah you know, being that this was the first time i heard the record um yeah it's like i i i kind of going back to something you said it's like if I continue listening to this record, then I feel like eventually you would pick out like the soul sample and there's so much more to give you the more you listen to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it, this was, you know, there's a Spotify thing. It's like chill beats to work and study to or whatever. Yeah. I feel like there's kind of a, like Dilla is in a way like to blame for, for that that came 10, 15 years later, because it kind of like what he was doing with these instrumentals that you can pay really, really close attention to. And they have all these kind of layers and textures. And I agree that they kind of work as a movement. Um, they also fade into the background pretty easily. Um, yeah. If you want them to, you can engage with them or not. It's not something that demands your attention. You have to kind of give it to it. Um, and I think like, you know, moved into that into like the music that Flying Lotus was making four or five years later. And I feel like it just kind of kept going until you got to these kind of lo-fi beats that are kind of cardboard sounding. Um, yeah. Not to blame Dilla for that, but I, I, I think the point was what, what I was going for there was that it, it is something that like you can engage with a whole, whole lot if you want to, or you can kind of let it drift by. One thing I wonder about that, because that's, that's always my inclination to think that kind of the current wave of it is like cardboard beats, but sometimes mm. I wonder though, um, if, if it's sort of, we just haven't spent that time investing. In, in that way that we might you know I, I'm not thinking that's the case but there probably are certain <laughs> artists that we might put into that category of like a cardboard beat when it's mm -hmm. sort of like that person would not want to be 
compared to it in the same way that Jay Dilla shouldn't be compared to it. Yeah, know? yeah. There could be an episode of spinning out in like 2037 where someone's <laughs> like, okay, lo-fi beats to chill and study too. We got to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have to see what, uh, what, what, what lives, what lives on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting thinking about the legacy too, because he made the album on his deathbed when he was in his yeah. early thirties. And um, I, I think that it, I've spent some time thinking about like, you know, I went in knowing that, knowing that this album was like the last bit of art that this guy made um, before he passed away. Uh, and and I had to kind of check myself and sort out if I just liked it because it has this kind of tragic backstory um, or if it really is that good. Uh, and I think, you know, it didn't take long for me to be like, I think it, you can feel it, it's emotional sounding music, even though there aren't any of his own vocals on there or anything. Um, I, I think that it, it, it matches its backstory, but it doesn't need the backstory to be engaging. In my, yeah, in my I opinion. mean, it seems like a simple comparison, probably is. Uh, but, you know, like, I think that it kind of pays off in ways that like certain jazz records do. Um, that if if someone just, like, because you were saying like with his emotion being into it, like, I feel like a lot of times, like, it's like jazz doesn't need someone singing on it. Preferably, I don't want that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, someone could prove me wrong. There might be a lot of jazz singers out there that I, that may be another thing, but I have not found it, you know. Man, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a jazz station in LA and I always change the station when someone starts fucking scat singing. Like, <laughs> no, I just want to hear some horns, please. I, <laughs> I want, I want someone to like prove me wrong but I, I don't know, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's totally like, it's, you know, it has emotion in the same way that like, you know, some blue note record does, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the comparisons between hip hop in general and jazz are obviously everywhere, you know, and yeah. been well documented. Uh, but that's kind of like, it almost feels more like I'm listening to Miles Davis or John Coltrane than, what I think about when I'm listening to like any hip hop and that could be because it's instrumental. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've heard people rap over some of these beats and they sound different if they're stretched out and sustained over like a three minute song. You know, I've heard, I think Ghostface did a song with one of them and Common, I remember hearing on one of them. After Dilla died, it was kind of like that frenzy of, you know, posthumous releases where people were, and there's some where people are just rapping over some of the beats from Donuts and I think, yeah, I think that's what made it almost hard for me to break into because there always felt like there was more new Jay Dilla material coming out in some capacity because of those like yeah people rapping over and whatnot so it's like where do I even find the source I I know that yeah. you've played in bands um and I I know you primarily as like singing in bands but do you play any other instruments I play a little guitar and okay. I used to mess around on the drums. Um, okay, because that's when you mentioned drums, like any of the people that really have pushed me to listen to this record before you um, have been drummers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did and they so, say anything about why? I don't know. I mean, yeah, uh, I, not really. Just I, I mean, I assume there's probably like an easy connection that I feel like drummers may tend to like hip hop more, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, cause it is, you know, drum oriented, um, but I don't know why those friends specifically, maybe they're seeing something I don't even more because I, I don't play drums. <laughs> sure. Sure. I remember hearing, um, you know, Questlove who's in the roots. Um, 
He played the drums on Voodoo by D'Angelo, which is like another one of my favorite albums. And it's kind of a high watermark of neo soul music from about 20 years ago. And I was reading something where he was talking about he had just spent the better part of a decade, like really just like perfecting his drumming. So he was like a metronome when he was playing because that's what hip hop music demands. You know, there, and he, he needed as a drummer in a rap group to sound like a drum machine. And he had to like unlearn that to play with D'Angelo. Um, and I heard that Dilla, it was like a, a little bit similar. Like he had a reputation for being a guy that would like learn his various like sequencers and drum machines kind of inside out and kind of get it to the point where he was so good with them that it would sound more natural. Like maybe some of the stuff is more, you know, hand programmed and not as, not as looped or not as can sounding. Mm. Um, and I get that sometimes when, when I hear his music, it has, I know some of it is other production stuff. Like it has kind of a shuddering loose, like living quality to it. And I think that sometimes that comes with the way that the beat might ever so slightly lag. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I feel more like enjoy. Go ahead. There, there, well, there's been like kind of a question that almost like comes up on every episode of this. I think it says more about me than anything. But when you're listening to records, do you feel like you can tell if something's recorded to a metronome? Um, no, I don't even think about that. I don't either, but I have friends that will comment while we're listening to it, like, I don't know, on tour in the van or something. You're like, wow, this wasn't definitely wasn't recorded to a metronome. And okay. then I'm like, how do, you, how do you know? Like, you know, it's like, what are you hearing? You know, it, you know, but, but there's also certain, the only way I think I understand it is like, maybe I feel like I can feel it more. And I feel like I just like became a, you know, Grateful Dead album, you know? Um, but it's, yeah, it's like, I feel records though that aren't as tight. Like, it's like, if a record is to a grid, I probably wouldn't necessarily know that's because like everything is to a click, mm -hmm. but I just kind of feel like it's like, this should have more of like a feeling to it. Yeah. You some know? kind of push and pull. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I do, you probably can do that while being on the grid, you know, but that's the extent of my you knowing that so i don't know if that's something yeah. you kind of feel when you're listening to music i listen to uh john lee hooker and you can tell but he's also like famous for having a really kind of elastic sense of of, of timing of, of rhythm and stuff um so that, that that's like the only if it's really egregious like that or like thelonious monk or something too who has an interesting sense of timing um but no if i'm just listening to like a more like a, like a rock record or something i never notice yeah yeah. yeah, I mean, I hear it like uh, people pointing out like certain like early Van Halen records, like they're kind of like more set off of whatever, like, you know, Eddie Van Halen was doing. So they just kind of follow him. But okay. I still wouldn't like point it. Someone has to point it out to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I, I, I never mm -hmm. noticed that. That's interesting. Yeah, just us novice musicians commenting <laughs> on that, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, when you heard this, record i mean this is i guess your introduction but do you know kind of like a back story of jay Dilla and like maybe how the community latched on to him before or was it all a posthumous thing so it was so from what i know he, he's um so he was 32 when he passed away in 2006 um in the 90s he's, he's from detroit and he started off uh with a group called slum village who have been this kind of ongoing detroit hip-hop institution ever since, even since he passed. Um, and they kind of defined a certain era of like of Detroit rap. Um, 
But then at some point, I guess it was maybe on the fourth or fifth, like the last couple of Tribe Called Quest albums, he Q-Tip met him somehow and he started working with Q-Tip. And like they started, they formed this production collective. Um, so his hands are kind of on the last couple Tribe Called Quest albums, which I think anyone would tell you are like the two last, the, the, the Tribe had already peaked by the time they did their last two records. So I think there was a point in the late 90s where people kind of blamed Jay Dilla for like the dip in quality in a tribe called Quest, um, who were such like a beloved rap group of that era. Um, but then it kind of switched around like those same kind of purists uh, came around on him uh, a few years later. Uh, and he was, you know, heralded as this hero or as this really, you know, skilled producer and talented uh, artist, which I, th which I think is, you know, rightful. I think that's good. Um, in the early 2000s, he was doing, he was doing stuff like he did an album with Madlib, who's another hip hop producer who's like pretty similar to Dilla. Um, they did an album called J-Lib where they rapped over each other's beats. Uh, so he was kind of in this like indie rap sphere in the early 2000s, which was a little bit more like stonery, like artistic, boundary pushing, weirder, hazier, jazzier stuff. And I think that's where he like, maybe came into his own a little bit more and like made more of a name for himself as like a, as an eclectic talent of some sort. Um, I think he had his hands on like, like, uh, like water for chocolate, which was a common album from around 2000. A lot of the stuff from that kind of neo soul, like backpack rap era. Um, he was, he was behind the scenes on, uh, so that's, that's, that's where he was coming from. He was kind of the like re respected, you know, your, favorite producers, favorite producer, um, like behind the scenes dude for the better part of a decade uh, before he made this album, before he passed away. Um, so I, for me, like I wasn't super duper engaged. I was kind of a little too punk for my own good for like the second half of the nineties. And, um, and so I wasn't too engaged with what he was doing. I wasn't really aware of him um, by name at least until he was dying. Um, and my friend Mike was like, Yo, you, you gotta check this out. Um, because I kind of had, had slept on the arrow when he was like first making a name for himself. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like fortunately for his legacy, the like dying story really it creates a good narrative. Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah. he had to pass for that to happen, and now <laughs> yeah, we yeah. don't have you know would have continued on to make amazing music. Uh, yeah, but it does create a good story. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't build on it though. It's the piss. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you mentioned uh, a couple threads there, I guess like I want to kind of put a pin in. But when you mentioned like I've always had like a, almost like a negative connotation of the term like backpack rap and like sure. yeah. kind of like what was your what was your experience with it like firsthand? Did you have an aversion to it, or were you steeped in that scene as well? Like, sure. Uh, so I like in the mid '90s, I got into punk. Uh, it was, and it was right when the kind of like Puff Daddy, early Jay-Z, shiny suit type of era was going on, Mace, all that stuff. And I got into punk, I was pretty into like anti-materialism, um, anti-capitalism. And this was all just like celebrating buying shit. A lot of it was, it was about flossing and like that didn't sit right with me. So I liked that the backpack rap that came a couple years later in response to that, you know, like the early most deaf and Talib Kweli type of stuff. Um, Rockets Records was in a, was a reaction to that, was a response to that. It was like, 
I'm not going to, I don't want to like describe things that aren't punk as punk, but it had like a, it was more punk friendly, you could say, because they're kind of, you know, talking about more, there was some some sort of anti-materialism, keeping it real type of shit going on that uh, really dovetailed with what I liked about punk. So I started getting back into hip hop in the late nineties. I remember I got, I had like, I got equipment I by outcast. Um, but I've been living in the South for a few years at that point. And it sort of, that made it, that was the first music I heard that sounded like the South to me, kind of. Um, and I got uh, most deaf and solid quality or black star. And that was kind of me getting back into things. Um, so that was me, that was me and backpack rap. Yeah. And then radio, radio rap was pretty good in that era too. Like in the early two thousands, you know, a lot of shit was kind of that weird, like futuristic, but old school sounding stuff like the Timberland and the Neptunes were producing like Missy Elliott and stuff. Yeah. So it was a good time to kind of, you know, bring my head back up from underground a little bit, I guess. Yeah. I feel like I, not even like a good reason, but I feel like I just have like a negative aversion for like things like Aesop rock and like uh, MC Chris and I don't know why. Yeah. I think I don't it know. almost, yeah. It, I don't know. Aesop Rock. Yeah, a lot of that shit, like, um, a lot of that indie rap, it was just like too verbose and not yes. funky at all. And there's just like, yo, there's a beat and you need to stick to it when you're rapping. Otherwise, it's not fun to listen to. I just feel like I'm listening to a dog barking in a closet right now. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can't stand that stuff. And I, I, it took me a lot. Like, yeah. So I, I didn't like a lot of that more, like, a lot of that underground stuff um very much at all because it's some my, my friend mike who i mentioned who put me on to dilla um i'm we we were friends in middle school when i was still living in the boston area and i moved to virginia and then he got like deeper into hip-hop and i got into punk and he kind of came out on the other end of things like hey you got to check out company flow and i when i would go back and visit and i'm like yeah i don't know about this man <laughs> yeah 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 i feel like my when i was playing in like faster punk bands probably around this time or a little after um yeah i feel like there would be always be a show where we'd show up and they're like we don't have another band but we have this rapper and it's always like you know it would honestly just always it's like backpack rapper because it would just be like pull out a laptop or pull out like pedals and stuff and just kind of like some white dude you know kind of rapping very fast you know barely yeah was the kind of thing so it's like so i discredit even like to sort of discredit Aesop Rock, it's like, it's not probably technically Aesop Rock's fault that those people suck. You know, if I, mean, I show I thought, up yeah, somewhere random. I was not a fan of, yeah, I was was not a fan of his back in the day. That's for sure. I, I haven't yeah. listened to it in 20 years. But yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so, yeah, Aesop, kinda... if you're listening to this, we don't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> our, our huge fan, Aesop Rock. <laughs> yeah, so. I heard he made a new album that was really, really good. It made me... I wanted to give it, I was thinking about giving that a listen actually, but yeah. some of it, it sounds like a little too slam poetry-ish, um, yes. like theatrical. And it also, it's kind of like, I, this is, I don't know a ton about sports, so don't push me on this too far, but it, it seems like <laughs> one of those things where it's like, they're like pushing a technical prowess instead of something that maybe seems a little bit more natural. So it's almost like watching, it's like Larry Bird can hit lots of three pointers, but um, you know, Magic Johnson is way better, like right under the basket. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a, for, I guess the sports analogy, which I can't really push that hard either. Uh, potentially like technically good, but not great to watch. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and like, even, I don't know if you like skateboarded or poorly. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. I mean, IBM X, though, it's like when I did, I haven't done it in a long time. 
but you know it's just like certain like skaters or whatever that it's like i what actually comes to mind is the skateboarder named andy mcdonald oh yeah it's like no one can deny that andy mcdonald was a great skater but he looked goofy as shit doing (laughs) yeah so so it's like i can't say and i don't even want to keep saying asap rock you know uh, I mean, he is, he, is, he is kind of the like the face of what we're talking yeah. about here, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's like these people that do slam, almost slam poetry oriented stuff. Um, I can't say that they can't come up with a lot of words that, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, I don't like the feel of it. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's kind of like uh, yeah. I know a couple of people who are like they could shred on the guitar, you know, and they could play like the weirdest Frank Zappa song, but they couldn't write a song on their own. It's a similar type of thing. Yeah, like or a they could write a song, kind of thing. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Even sometimes I feel like the... Uh, uh, I'm really picky about like what emo I like, and that might just be getting older. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. But, you know... I, I want to talk about getting older, by the way. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> yeah. put a, a memory in that, because I have some thoughts about Dylan on that, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, when I think about like people... Like the idea of like people finger tapping, you know, um, <laughs> in like emo stuff, it's like... There's, I can't do it. So I can't, in that technical aspect, I can't shit on. Like, I'm not a great musician. Okay. I don't even like calling myself a musician. But there's times where it's, I'm watching someone tapping a lot and my ears are telling me it's bad. Sure, you know? sure. It's not bad in the sense of technically I cannot do that. And a lot of us can't even come close, but I don't like the way it sounds. So it's yeah, like, yeah. I don't know ultimately the point. It's just subjective, I guess, there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're just walking somewhere, you don't need to be kicking off of the backflip every now and then. Yeah, if you're walking, you don't need to backflip, you know? Yeah. 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 And usually walking is plenty good. I had a point like playing music, sorry to cut you off, where I feel like in the past couple of years, I got really into the idea of just being like, just being a bass player Mm -hmm. and just making sure I'm like hitting the parts. But then at some point, I felt like I actually just got lazy. So it is like a hard, you know, I'm like, I'm not doing anything now. You know, it's like you kind of overcompensate and kind of redirect, but I, I cut you off. No, that, that's, it's interesting. I think like, a, you know, usually bass players are kind of frustrated guitarists. And I love watching a bass player who's like clearly a bass player who likes playing the bass. Yeah. And I know what you mean about like, you don't want to do too much. And the next thing you know, you're just down to being like, I'm just playing two notes right now. I could do more. It sounds yeah. like I don't know what I'm doing. Um. I was thinking about, so Dilla was, he was 32 when he passed. Um, and I was th- thinking about something that was like a big part of my thirties was kind of understanding that like the best stuff isn't the stuff that like blows my mind. It gives me some kind of just manic feeling. It's the stuff where like, there's nothing wrong. Um, you know, like this is just right. This is fine. This yeah. is good. I have no complaints here. Like, I don't know if that just means it's like diminished expectations as I get older and or like I feel things, I definitely feel things differently than I did 20 years ago or whatever, but like just kind of accepting that you don't need to have your mind blown by everything. That sometimes the good thing is just like the, the simple thing that has has no flaws. And I, I think that that was maybe that that's kind of how I feel about donuts also. It's, it's like, it's not something where I put it on and it's immediately like grabs me by the throat and has me like breaking a sweat and just, you know, ha- having this really strong emotional response to it. It kind of takes a while to grow on you. Um, and there isn't really a piece out of place, but it's subtle. And I think that's, I guess it's more mature or something. Um, yeah. It's also funny, like 32 is pretty young. I'm 41 now. So I'm like almost 10 years older than this guy. And it's something that I'm still returning to. Um, 
And it's also odd to think that that means that he was, so I was like 26, 27 at the time. He was like five, six years older than me. So it's wild to think like how much he was achieving at a young age. And that's been kind of a recurring thing when I look back at some of the hip hop I liked, you know, when I was a preteen or a teenager, it's like, these guys seem like these, you know, wise adults. And then it's like, oh, they were 21. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to kind of look look back on art like that. Like Tribe Called Quest was in their very early 20s when they made the low end theory, for example, or like the far side were like 19 when they made Bizarre Ride. Um, and it's, you know, it's similar with a lot of the punk that I like. I guess people that age are just making the most urgent sounding music. When I think about like Killer Mike, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was an era of Killer Mike where it's like Killer Mike, like solo records and had like a major label deal. Yeah. But also, I don't know if that was, it's like in our, our metric coming from punk that was successful, mm -hmm. but it's sort of like, who identifies with that part of like Killer Mike's life and Killer Mike has a totally different life with Run the Jewels. Like that's like weird to kind of like almost feel like you make it at a certain age. You probably felt that way. Yeah. And then you go so many years and then, well, now undeniably he's making it again, but it's sort of like he's lived a completely different whole other life. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his. I remember reading about that. Like he started out as this like outcast protege especially big boy from outcast in the early 2000s and he had like a couple hits with them and he did an album with a couple hits on his own then it was like pretty quiet for a hot minute yeah um and if you hear him talking it sounds like he was feeling pretty lost for a while there when the major label shit died down and he was trying to make it as an indie artist um which that must be a weird adjustment you know we yeah you know we're punks so we hear more about the people who like started off as indie artists, then signed a major label contract and feel unmoored or whatever. Um, that's more the narrative we know, but he like kind of went the opposite way where he sort of started on top and then fell off and wasn't sure what to do with it. That's gotta be a lot harder because that sort of like goes into just the romanticization. Like that's almost like what you, we don't because we came from punk, but it's like, that's what we're kind of like everyone's told. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's like you make it and then you kind of, you're like 22 and you got signed if not then it's like what are you doing you yeah. know so then you have to like that's got to be like a harder thing because like i don't know why i'm inserting them here but like think about like jawbox it's like they all sure. came from like punk and so probably when they got signed to a label they're like it's like a wink and a nod you know and yeah. they can kind of, they kind of know how to go back to being independent because they've understood they've had like a path that they can see yeah oh well it looks like it's back in the van for us right yeah and it, so it's like it's probably sucks in certain ways like you're sure. like you know and you know it's like sebado or something like well, i went to see sebado and they didn't have they were touring in a minivan and this was like three or four years ago okay and they didn't have anybody else on tour with them wow you know <laughs> and but they probably they potentially almost get paid like maybe not more as their peak in the 90s but they're probably doing fine by having that i was like kind of having that conversation today like thinking about i know he's like everywhere but the eve six guy you know uh, but like he actually had a really good i think it was billboard article where he's talking about how they just like go on tour with like you know it's a smaller thing you know that was hard to adjust to so mm -hmm. kind of thinking about like that's got to be hard for someone like the Eve Six guy, and I'm trying to relate that back to like Killer Mike, where it's like you're pretty much straight up just given major label stuff, yeah, and then you kind of have to adjust it from there. And it's hard. Yeah, you know? yeah, you got you probably have to learn a lot more in your feet, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's got to be hard.
because you expect like like i see even younger bands where it's like they get a manager from the get-go and they're just like diy bands and you know it's like i'm like if it works for you sure you know like that's like where my age is going where if i was younger i'd be like fuck your stupid manager or some you know shit but now i'm just yeah. like i don't know if you need it you know whatever you don't have to do that shit on the road cool yeah I, i'm tired yeah so, yeah, yeah yeah someone's got to be got to be the responsible one i think it, yeah. yeah it probably takes a lot to recognize that but i agree it's weird like i remember when i was setting up shows this was you know 20 something years ago and someone's like oh yeah we are our, our manager is setting this up or whatever i'm like you have a huh yeah of course that's also me you know not being confident and me being able to put on a good show for them and pay them what they need or whatever so i feel uh, that really hard yeah. i remember with booking a um this was i guess like 10 years ago now but i was booking like a festival that had like more than 50 bands on it over like a three-day period and i did that for three years in a row wow. um but essentially anytime i got an email from a band to play the festival and it involved a booking person if it was a lot of steps they just weren't playing yeah you yeah. know um yeah. but now i wouldn't like bat an eye at that now but you know like 10 years ago at the place that i was in my life i was like that's not punk or diy or whatnot it's you know i kind of yeah. like, you know i could take it or leave it now like you know i'll fill out a form and email it back to you <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm kind of experiencing that you know i'm a, an author and i'm like publishing with a, a bigger indie press so it'd be kind of like being on like sub pop or merge records or something yeah, yeah and it's like oh, i have oh this is this is easier there's an actual publicist like other people i don't have to do everything and we're not limited to just my resources and my energy um yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> but i i also know that i would have looked at that way sideways you know back in the day um yeah. i have been thinking about that a little bit um but it's kind of cool to go, also go into those situations with the like you're talking about job box you know with my like <clears throat> with my experience playing music and doing things myself and like um you know i feel like i'm hopefully easier to work with for these people who are also helping me you know because i don't don't expect everything to be done for me but it's it's yeah. it's that's a hard thing to learn too like it's there was a point where um and I, I don't know if like any of your bands had this point where it's like if you get on a label that you feel like they're able to kind of take care of some of this stuff it's like i feel like it's like i was just like a feral animal in the wilderness and you know i i don't <laughs> even know what i don't know Mm -hmm. so it's like when i go back to thinking about they're like you should record this album to a click i guess going back to that it's like i didn't know because all i listened to was you know old husker do or something you know it's like <laughs> these things don't you know and so it's like someone has to like tell me like way past the point like it's like so it's like did punk rock actually ruin my life you know in certain capacities yeah. you know uh, yeah yeah i feel like it's like maybe capable of doing like the, the bare minimum or the shitty version of a lot of things yeah 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 um even like when i'm thinking about we were talking about it before but this new job that i started um where it's like okay you do this part and then you pass it to me and i do this part mm -hmm. and as someone that's been in diy it's like if i book a tour i book the tour you know i book the tour i make the flyer i post about the flyer i put up the flyers you know but you know so that's like a hard division that i guess even going back to like jay dilla or a lot of this era of stuff you know like how diy was it yeah you know um, yeah i'm not something I, I, 
I feel like it was still kind of artists who are making the art that they want to make and interacting with the people they want to interact with a lot of the time. Um, yeah, I just went back like, to Jay Dilla uh, yeah. when I didn't have to. But you know. No, I mean, I, I think about that a lot. It's kind of, you know, as I get more involved in other kinds of art, be it like experimental yeah. film that my wife likes or literary stuff that I do, or even like listening to hip hop or jazz instead of punk, then I see, you know, I see that like DIY punk isn't, this super duper unique thing. But I also don't want to be like, this random ass jazz show I just went to downtown is exactly like a punk gig, because it's not. Yeah. You know? I, yeah I don't want to like, yeah. push that. Oh. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's like, I definitely don't want to be the guy that goes like, I feel like one day I'm going to be like skiing and then I'm going to like be, tell someone like, this is punk. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then you're like, it's got to stop somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Everything can't be punk. I think that you know our artistic integrity um, kind of transcends, though it isn't. It isn't just punk, and maybe that works on the slopes too. I don't know. I've never been skiing. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking. Uh, so when when that album dropped, when Donuts came out, I um I I was like trying to sort. I'd moved to New York a couple of years ago and was like kind of trying to grow up. And I just had my first office job and it didn't go well. And I was like, that wasn't right. I need to. I, I need a. I need a, an hourly wage type of job. I got a job in a sunglasses warehouse um, under the Manhattan Bridge in Brooklyn. And part of my job was like taking a big hockey bag, you know, like the pads bag, like the biggest duffel bag you can buy um, and taking the train all the way from downtown Brooklyn to uh, the Upper East Side, which is like kind of a hike, like probably a 45 minute trip. And then I go to this shady opt optician's office and he would just load up the duffel bag with um, designer sunglasses. And then I would just like have this bag that was when, now it was full of shades. It was almost the exact same size of me as me. And like, I'd bring it on the train back down to Brooklyn to this warehouse that I worked in. Like it was not, um, you know, it was definitely not entirely on the up and up. And I remember like hitting a low point with that because it was a crappy job and I wasn't being paid well. And I was like doing some math where I realized that, you know, I was making like less than 20 bucks an hour. And like, if I had just been, not working that day and someone came up to me and was like hey i'm gonna give you 20 bucks to ride the train and lug this bag around on the train i would like tell them to go to hell and i realized yeah. that that's what my job was um and so i was like kind of gearing myself up to get the hell out of there and i remember coming off the train and i had this you know huge hockey bag full of um full of sketchy designer shades <laughs> um and there was a newsstand right by the train station in downtown brooklyn and it was after shortly after dilla had passed and there was a picture of the roots on the cover and quest love had a um a shirt on that said jay dilla saved my life or changed my life or something and i was like wow that's that's really a legacy right there like i want to spend my time and my energy making stuff that'll affect people you know to that degree or at least try to um and like this hockey bag full of Dior shades or whatever is probably not the way to do it. I need to kind of get, get focused and figure out what my, what my thing is right now. So you started um, making your own sunglasses. Yeah. Started do DIY <laughs> shades. <laughs> Which you no, didn't well, know about that thing is when you brought those, that duffel bag full of shades back, he would then take the shades and then put them in boiling water and then they would break down and then that they were like street drugs. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It was just yeah. all hair on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, yeah. That would be, yeah. Those definitely so you were those... really underpaid then. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, yes. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what would happen if I got messed with by the cops on that job. I'm glad it never happened. I could have been in some trouble. But... 
Hmm. Yeah, there probably was something very illegal about that in some way. I don't know, lower yeah. level illegal. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, but, definitely some low life stuff going on. Yeah, I feel like it's like my temper. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I wouldn't be a cop, but <laughs> but it's like there also would be like I feel like if I found someone with you know a duffel bag of sunglasses i i'd be like i think this might be illegal but i just don't know if i care enough you know it's like you know i would make a horrible cop i assume um you know i think it's a temperament thing probably um more than anything but i'd be like yeah this is probably illegal but i don't i just simply don't give a shit (laughs) yeah i mean i think it takes a certain type of person to be a cop that's for certain and that's not a compliment um (laughs) yeah yeah i do wonder if about that if they're ever like i don't feel like doing any paperwork right now so yeah go yeah yeah i don't know well then it sort of like would be bad because then then i'd be like well what is a crime you know i'd i'd get really like way too like you know well if they're you know i don't know i feel like it's like it's almost like becomes like a i would just be like a satanist cop or something and i'd never do anything (laughs) because they'd be like well social morals are you know uh fluctuating constant so you really can't you know Who's to say speeding is bad? Yeah, the truth is relative. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, when I I was asking about like skateboarding though, I really thought like this would be a perfect record for, and it's probably has been in like hundreds of skate videos. Like I just don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it has that vibe that it could be, and it can be put in anything since one, since it's instrumental, but it's a little kind of like easy going for that fits like for most kind of skate edits or even like, just imagining like skating curbs with friends this is like a perfect record for that yeah i yeah. could hear that yeah 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 i'll listen to it i i mean i listen to it when i'm writing a lot because i like to listen to instrumental stuff so i don't like accidentally put a bunch of freddie gibbs bars in the middle of a book or something <laughs> um or when i'm yeah when i'm when i'm writing when i want it help kind of helps me focus like i said it kind of sends my brain away but i can also engage with it when i want to so i mean i can i can write to it and i can also like i was listening to it for a little bit while i was running today um and it was like it kept me moving and i was also engaging with it in a different way you know like it was the music i was listening to that was motivating me one weird thing is i've kind of realized i mean i've had to listen to a lot of these with running um but it just it got kind of cold so um this is this my own accountability I plan to get back into running, but it's a little cold right now, um, so I hate it. Um, but, you know, like I found um, that actually like listening to podcasts when I'm running, I like because it's sort of like then I can sort of like turn almost like turn my body off and do then I'm not hyper focused on what I'm doing when I'm running. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I think. Yeah, I was, I've been listening to some podcasts when I'm running yeah. lately, too. Um, Another way of saying it is I get bored sometimes when I run. Fair enough. It's boring. Yeah, yeah. it can be really boring. I was I, My wife just bought a treadmill, and I was using that today. And I was like, I'm just staring at the wall. I hate this. I like at least going around in my neighborhood because I kind of have different like landmarks that I look out for. And I can more like get a sense of the amount of distance that I'm covering. It feels more like I'm accomplishing something. Yeah, yeah. it's like when I run, I feel like it's like I'm measuring it by like there's this stop sign. You know, so if I can kind of keep this pace up to that point as I'm climbing this hill, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, there's certain things like, like Kate Bush is really fun to run to. Yeah. Speaking of going up hills. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I like, yeah. Hounds of Love is, is good. Yeah. 
and sometimes even slower music. I, sometimes I'll, I'll do what I call a reggae run where I put on like some slower reggae and just try to run with the beat. And it's kind of more of a sustained long distance thing. Cause I can kind of fry myself if I'm listening to like fast, super energetic music. And then I just like blow all my energy in the first couple of miles. And then I'm like, shit, I'm tired. I have to go home. At um, the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things I ran to the most was like, uh, I guess hair metal would be the, you know, cause it's got like this kind of constant, like dun 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 dun, and I felt like that was like the speed of what I'm running, you know. I could hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I should put. I should listen to. I love that song. She sells sanctuary by the Cult. That one's great. I like what on too. Yeah, I could totally see that. That always makes me want to pretend like I'm riding. Because it feels like, um, it feels like it. It's kind of building, and it feels like it's like getting bigger. But really, the rhythm kind of stays pretty steady but it also it kind of feels like one of those like driving late at night kind mm-hmm. of songs like you know um i think i we heard that song when we were in, like when we were on tour and we actually were in la oh and, awesome yeah and it was like we were on the strip oh oh that's so perfect it's just wild <laughs> yeah i definitely i have some music that i just put on when i'm driving around in la and that 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 is one of them that and um i mean dr dre is a pretty obvious one. Oh yeah 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 the far side um and also <laughs> me and my old bandmates we had kind of a running joke about la woman by the doors so i, I like one of my old bandmates came to visit about a year ago um i remember we got, we got in the car and i'm like you ready and i just put it on and we were we were cracking up it was some old guys having an Dude, inside joke when we were after we did like kind of the the main strip it got dark and so we were actually uh behind like i guess like the comedy store uh, there's yeah. it gets into like the Hollywood Hills yeah so actually listening to the song Hollywood Hills when you're like driving through like those like tight back roads yeah. and then kind of looking down at the city is like <sighs> who whose song is Hollywood Hills is that uh, Bob Seger oh okay I'll check that out yeah Bob yeah Seger one of them while you're in Hollywood Hills at night oh whoa okay oh nice <laughs> one of my yeah. one of the people in my writing group lives up in the hills and it's always like the, the, my ways is like all the my gps is just gnarly getting up there it's like turn left now right you know um <laughs> turn right now left immediately yeah. turn around and yeah. i guess like since i mentioned that like uh well you've been there for <clears throat> i didn't realize that you had been in la that long but um since pandemic like i feel mm-hmm. like how is like la changed for you yeah um well I mean, I was working from home already, but now, you know, my wife and my kid are here a lot more. Uh, it, it, it's hard to really gauge. Like it, it's, some of it's really terrible. Like some of my friends have lost their jobs and moved away. Like I'm really worried about what my life is gonna be like when this ends and I actually can feel that I don't have a social life, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I mean, I, the things I like to do are pretty solitary anyway. I, I cook, I run, I write. And I hang out yeah. with my six-year-old and my friends when I can see him. Um, so the different thing is that there are just parts of town I haven't been to in almost a year. Um, but on the upside, that also means that I don't like spend half the day going to meet somebody for lunch or like, I don't know, going on some, just going to some store I wanted to go to, even though I didn't really need to. So it kind of, I don't, I'm just doing stuff that I, that, that feels the most important. Usually it just means getting groceries and I'm tired of it, but. The city itself isn't too, too different. Like we live in a pretty spread out part of town um, and things don't look that different. Some of the, we live um, 
near this strip of businesses it's all black owned businesses in a neighborhood called Lamert Park and they're all like it's really popping over there they've had I just read something in the paper that said that they all like a lot of the businesses on that strip had one of their best years ever um, during the pandemic I think also you know Black Lives Matter kind of put renewed focus on them as well um, but you know also it's, it's a bummer like I feel like I could be anywhere uh, and you know, I'm glad that we have a pretty big apartment with a backyard and a second bathroom and all that stuff. Um, but it would cost half as much if I was in Richmond or something, you know? Yeah. Um, and so they kind of, I, I, I don't know. I know that if I, if I go too far down that wormhole and I'm like, fuck it, we're moving to <laughs> Greensboro or something. Like as soon as we get to Greensboro, the pandemic ends and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I want, I miss all these restaurants in LA. I want to go see my friends and they're not here. Um, yeah. but right now everything's virtual and it's like, yeah. I'm talking to you all the way across the country and like a lot of the work stuff I do, do is with people in other states anyway. Um, so it's, it's been kind of, I don't know, I'm doing like book events with people in DC and I can do that easier now. But not to say that the pandemic's better. Sorry, this is yeah. a convoluted answer. I've got some very... No, I mean, I think it's great because it makes me, one, it kind of makes me think of things and um, I don't know, I've heard, I guess one of the top reasons why and I don't I don't know enough about it. So I, I couldn't realize that. I, I like the answer you gave. Um, just kind of like how the pandemic has affected like homeless populations in LA as opposed to other places, um, mm. you know, but it, you know, but it's, I, you, I, I don't know if it's like harder to see those things for you because you're kind of inside more and you've already lived a life that's inside more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I'm coming from a very privileged standpoint when it comes yeah. to that. I'm just, yeah, I'm like at, at home working on my computer. I don't have to like go to a job site somewhere and, and like risk getting germs or I'm not in a homeless shelter. Um, Cause I think that, I think that would be very, very different. And even like some of my friends that are medical workers, you know, it's like way, way, way worse. Um, you know, the job is much more stressful and busy. One of my friends is an ER nurse and she was supposed to get vaccinated and tested positive the day before. It was just like, Ugh. yeah. So we've, yeah. we've got it pretty easy. I mean, I'm a writer and my wife is a professor at our kids in kindergarten and he's on Zoom school. It's the hardest right. on him. You know, he's lonely. Um, he's a really outgoing kid and he doesn't get to see his friends. And I mean, I'm, I'm like a six-year-old's number one bro, which is fun, but also exhausting. Um, and I, you know, I hope it doesn't have too much of a lasting effect on him. I hope he can get back out there and yeah. see his friends yeah. and develop. I, I feel like I've heard, I've heard like definite obvious conversations from people that either have kids or just you know, from people that have kids, I feel like I'm more willing to hear it. But sometimes like I'll hear people and they're like, what is going to happen with the kids? And I'm like, you don't even have kids. Like, why do you give a shit? You know, it's like, you know, and then it's like, it, then you're just like, I don't think you're coming from the right place. Cause what do you give a fuck about kids? You know, uh, <laughs> right. you know? Um, but like mainly the point being is like, yeah, I think it is going to take a while to know like how it would affect you. There's certain things even outside of being a kid like i guess us as full-grown adults mm -hmm. uh, we don't even really know we've either been missing or like we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side so it's kind of hard to tell like kind of plan for something that you don't know when's going to come yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's kind of thinking about you know people my grandparents age who lived through the depression and like won't throw anything away they refuse to do that or like my grandma i think grew up in like a pretty rural area and uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't always getting the best food. So like they just cook it to death to make sure all the germs are out of it. Um, so like when she made spaghetti, it would like break on the forks. It was so mushy. Um, 
So it's just like little things like that, like that, that might ripple through little things, habits that we pick up now. Like, am I ever going to want to use a water fountain again? I don't know. Yeah. Something like that too. I even think, I think about the way I grew up eating food. Like, uh, I mean, I was, I grew up in a trailer park, so I grew up poor. Um, and it's like when I met my wife and kind of just moved out of my hometown, it's mm-hmm. like, I didn't necessarily know that people didn't just always eat steak well done. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I still don't mess with the bloody meat. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, and then kind of like even having certain foods later, it'd be like, well, I don't like, you know, Brussels sprouts. And it's like, I don't remember. I always thought Brussels sprouts were like the worst, but it's like we had like bag vegetables or whatnot. Yeah. You know? So I, I feel, I don't know if this is just my age, but I feel like those got a bad rap. Like when I was a kid in the eighties, it was kind of like, if you read a kid's book and they didn't like a vegetable, it was always Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And I, ne- I didn't really have it. I never really had it. And then I had them and I was like, damn, these are delicious. They were, yeah. they were tripping in this book. What are they talking about? Like we boiled everything growing mm-hmm. up. It felt like, yeah, like Brussels sprouts, like vegetables, uh, hot dogs, you know, it was just yeah. every meat, you know, it was, everything was boiled for whatever reason. And, okay. you know, uh, I don't know when PR, when the PR kind of shifted people away from boil, like the big boil lobby, I guess, went away, <laughs> um, you know, so, and like, I guess someone started doing press for Brussels sprouts and, mm-hmm. you know um yeah i don't know where am i going with this uh. well the album's called donuts speaking of eating <laughs> and donuts yeah, that's like a nickname for 45s apparently i didn't know that and on the edition i have which is a newer pressing it's got a picture of um a drawing inspired by randy's donuts which is like a la landmark of it i don't know if you ever see in a music video or a movie it's like the small donut place with a giant donut on the roof it's called randy's and it's kind yeah. of a, a landmark in in la it's in inglewood um so that that brings it back to food a little well bit. i think what's interesting though to think about the donuts thing in relation to this album is like how the first track is called donuts outro yeah and then i i haven't i didn't really pay attention to it enough but i read about it so i guess welcome to the show loops it back completely to uh to donuts and then mm. it's really just like one continuous loop of music yeah it's supposed it is supposed to be circular yeah Whoa. like a donut hey <laughs> well that that's awesome yeah yeah like, but did you did you feel like you knew that when you were listening to it initially i figured there was some kind of trickery going on if like the first track is called the outro and the last track is called the intro but yeah. honestly um I, that's like a gimmick you know I, and I, I i didn't want to let that um i don't know if if it's like some smart dumb shit where it's like, you know, this record's actually a circle. I'm like, yeah, but is the record good or the songs yeah. good? Like, I don't need this clever trick um, where the last song sounds like the first song or whatever for me to enjoy this thing. If anything, that's going to make me more skeptical of the actual art. I'm going to worry that you were like trying to do clever stuff instead of actually making enjoyable music. I think it's cool. I think it's an extra like fun little fact about the record, but that's not something I think about too regularly. Yeah, I think that like when I kind of think about it from like a macro view, some of the things like that in a way kept me from listening to this record. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And because it's like, and while I think about, it's totally, it's when I think about things like even like sublime, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like if, you know, was anyone going to give a shit about sublime outside of 
the Bradley Knoll story, you know? Right, right. Sorry, Bradley. But, you know, like, it's like, and so sometimes I, I, and I guess I'm kind of putting words in your mouth. Like, I kind of feel like the story sometimes can distract me from wanting to. Like, I'm like, prove it, you know? Like, I'm going to give it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about that kind of nature of hype lately. Um, like, even when it comes to, like, like, like new books. I'm like, okay, why are people excited about this? What are they saying about yeah. it? Is this something that's actually speaking to the quality of the work or is it like something else about its context or this other thing that the author is doing? Um, yeah. So I, I think, I think about that too. Yeah. I felt, I definitely felt it with your new book, like, cause on the front, it says one of NPR's best books of the year. So I'm like, prove it, Chris. <laughs> you know? Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We just wrote that on there and hope they agreed. You know, <laughs> no one's going to call you out on it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, NPR doesn't have a platform. They're, you could say you could say you've graduated from like any college. That's true. The, well, the first the hardcover edition they messed up and said I had like a there was a typo. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm responsible too. I think it said that I had like a mas two master's degrees when I don't. I have a bachelor's and a master's. Well, so yeah. I, was, I was like taking some uh, academic stolen valor. On the did you add that to your resume though? I did not. No. Oh, you just put an asterisk next to it, like well they said. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There is a book that says that I have two master's degrees. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like to think about like uh, almost like madman type things where it's like you really could have just walked into a business and said, like, if you can bullshit your way around enough, you could just say that you're like either a certain person or you went to a college and there was really no way for anyone to find out because you could have given a number and it could have just been a fake thing or even not even that much. They would have had to like mail a letter. Yeah, you know? yeah, like yeah. So that's what they mean by the good old days, I think. That's, is that was that something that happened in that show, Madman? Like he was had like a secret identity or something? Uh, I think I just spoiled it for you. Oh, I'm never gonna watch it. I, <laughs> okay. I've yeah. dedicated my life to like avoiding white men in suits and like. It's a I, really good show. Maybe that's a hype thing where you've. No, I get so. Number one, it's just like that whole. I'm, I'm really skeptical of white shit from before civil rights like i don't want to watch it um <laughs> yeah. i remember everyone's like throwing these cocktail parties and it's like you know what if you invited me i would have been the waiter at the party um yeah so i don't this is this is rubbing me the wrong way i'm not going to watch it that's interesting yeah. about Mad Men, though and honestly like john ham is so talented every time i see that guy in something he's really good so maybe i am doing myself a disservice but i also you know would rather like die on a weird hill and be a colossal hater than i not. can't think of any um and I don't know if the show really needed to do it because I think I, it's like, I, don't, I can't think of any non-white characters on that show. Mm -hmm. Realistically in that world, would there have been any non-white people? No. And, I, um, and, I like, I, yeah. and I, I'm cool with that. I'd almost rather that they be true to how racist it was, um, yeah. you know, in, the, in those ways, than like shoehorn in a random like black person. That, yeah. You know, and it's kind of like the forced diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Do at least be true to at least own the fact that it was racist as hell back then you know yeah, yeah. and i guess that, that kind of brings me to interesting when you were playing music like coming up in punk uh yeah. did you i feel like i'm just gonna ask it like outright like did you Bring feel it. that like playing in bands like you know be did you feel that i guess is simply the question like like feel racism yes directly living in richmond but did you feel it as like someone existing in punk a scene that sometimes we romanticize as thinking was more open-minded than it probably was at the time yeah um 
so I, I, before I start bagging on racist punk, I should give myself a hard time, you know. Um, so I got into, I got like, especially into punk in earnest. Uh, when I was a teenager, we had just moved to the South. So I have a, a black dad and an Irish American mom. I was born in the Boston area. My dad's from Richmond, we moved down there. I'd never lived around black people before. And I was like, finally, I'm gonna fit in. Cause I was used to kind of feeling like the odd person out in a white area, um, even though I was like socialized mainly around white people. Then I got around black people and didn't quite fit in either. And I was like, this shit's complicated. What do I do? Um, that's exactly what I sounded like when I was 15. No, but I was like, you know what? This is too complicated. So I'm punk now. That's what I'm into. This is at least like, you know, there's some easy answers in the politics. It's supposedly anti-racist. It makes me feel like I can like achieve things. I can do things. Um, I can start a band. I can, I, and you know, I can, I can succeed on my own terms, which is something that's always been important to me and that I felt like I wasn't able to do in other places. Um, yeah, then, but then, yeah, it's still racist. Like moving to Richmond, so this isn't punk Richmond, but like we lived, um, after we lived with my grandparents for a minute, we lived, our first apartment was around the corner from the Lee Monument, which is the one that's like in all the news now with all the graffiti on it and stuff. But yeah. there's a whole street there called Monument Ave that has like, had like four or five Confederate statues on it. So I just like take a left off my parents' block. And the first thing I saw was a horse's ass. Um, excuse me, Robert E. Lee's horse's ass. Like this guy, this is a guy who fought a war so he could own people who looked like me and my family. Um, and that was the first time of being like 15 and being like, I can actually point to a tangible thing in front of me and be like, this is exactly the thing that's oppressing me for no reason, no good reason, you know? Not like there's ever really a good reason to be oppressed, but um, so there's just more of a racist atmosphere. And also, you know, New England people are a little bit more like distant or passive aggressive. Um, and in the South, it's often just like a little bit more direct along with just, you know, Confederate flag bumper stickers or like, People were also just saying some more like outright racist stuff around me, um, punks and non-punks. Um, so that was something, so that was difficult to navigate. Um, but for a long time, I kind of had the mentality of like, well, it's punk and punk's anti-racist. So this is probably okay, um, which is of, of course wrong. Like, and yeah. it took me a couple of years and I was like, oh man, I feel like I've kind of painted myself into a corner. Like I really want to get to know myself as a black person. And uh I'm touring Germany right now with a white <laughs> punk band. Um, like this isn't really a way to get in touch with your African roots. Um, but also, you know, this is like the, the late nineties and a lot of kind of like Southern sludge metal type of stuff was popular. Richmond's a heavy metal town. And like a lot of bands were rocking Confederate flags, unironically, you know, on some kind of heritage, not hatred type of bullshit. Um, and that was infuriating. That was so that, you know, was scary and made me feel like I wasn't really welcome in the supposedly welcoming place. Um, even like, Avail, who was like the most popular punk band and, you know, seemed like good people all around and were coming from a good place. They also had like a Southern fixation. Their album was called Dixie, you know, and it had a picture of what looks like a Confederate soldier on the cover. Um, and, you know, I remember my dad, my black parent finding it and being like, what is this? What are you listening to? Is this, this looks like some Confederate shit in my house. Why? <laughs> um, and I, and I, he, he wasn't wrong to feel that way. And I know it was, it was a little more nuanced than that, but, you know, uh, I, you know, it's also, I couldn't really defend it. Um, then there's also just the kind of, you know, that atmosphere of like, I, uh, you know, it, it started to feel like it was like, punk was like a club of a bunch of white dudes against sexism and racism, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's, it, it's kind of like, this. something needs to be examined here. Something needs to be changed. Um, and I feel like it has happened a lot in the last 20 years. Punk is a lot more diverse at least from where i'm sitting i'm not as active as i once was yeah um, i mean growing up for me like i grew up in wilmington north carolina 
it took me a long time to get to a point of just being like actually separating really the heritage not hate kind of thing or southern by the grace of god that kind of stuff like even when i felt like i was like like way past it because it's like i knew what my relationship wasn't and i think i'm i guess i'm saying that and not even to like give a veil a pass but there was that in terms of like white artists where it's like we understand what that means Mm -hmm. but this is our sound but it's like you can't do that because that starts being like the well we're going to take the swastika back you know (laughs) and you know it's like there there is that and like kind of a lot of tattoo art and stuff like that um and it's like but you can't you can't tell someone like what it you know you can't i can't tell you what the confederate flag means to me and sort of erase it for you and make it all better yeah yeah it's like it it has this it it could it could have like a very much more subtle and kind meaning in this really particular context but it doesn't transfer to the to the world at large Um, i mean it's it's it takes a long time because it's easier not to think about it you know yeah and i mean even i was going through that when i was trying to avoid thinking about race by kind of putting myself all the way into punk right and i know and it's complex i remember i got a tattoo from a black dude with a confederate flag tattoo when i was like 19. um and there's uh panama jackson is a a blogger he writes for the root for very smart brothers and he like went to high school in alabama and was talking about that like he was just so used to seeing confederate flags like a lot of the white kids at his school just rocked them and like wore confederate flags and these were kids that he was in class with or on sports teams with and they got along okay like he didn't really make that connection of how messed up it was until someone who wasn't from there um you know saw it and was like what the fuck is going on yeah it wasn't that long ago that i feel like I mean, what, like the Charleston shooting, like how long ago was that? You know, that's like in the last five, five years. years? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, that's essentially where for the most part in mainstream society, where you saw it less. Well, that's yeah. not long forced, ago. Yeah, that forced the conversation. <laughs> that's yeah. wild. This yeah. is some, some age perspective. I think about that as like, I definitely am not happy with state of politics, you know, which things were a lot more progressive. And I'm like, oh yeah, gay marriage was illegal up to like six years ago. These things do happen. Like I remember in 2008, like Clinton and Obama were both kind of waffling on the idea of gay marriage. And like, I was an adult then, I was almost 30 years old. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, um, I guess like you, you kind of answered it, but in a way then, I guess like, do you feel like your first exposure to things was like rock music and it, you didn't have like, either rap or soul in the house or what was your experience with that music wise um getting into things my my dad's a a music lover my dad's my black parent he has this story about going to a school dance in eighth grade and like he was just entranced by the guitarist's instrument (laughs) he's like this is what i want out of this dance is just watch the guitar and his date was pissed off at him um but he plays guitar and so i grew up here in um he likes like rock music and r&b and soul so i grew up here in like Prince, Curtis Mayfield, Muddy Waters, um, Finn Lizzy, Living Color, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I forget if I said that or not, that's his favorite. So like, it was mainly like a lot of black guitar music is what I heard a lot at home. And then when I started looking for music on my own, um, I was interested in rap music and hip hop. Um, and I got like Run DMC and a couple other things. And I had a, a babysitter who's actually, uh, a white guy named Adam was like three, four years older than me. Um, and he was like really into hip hop. So it was funny. It was like this white dude was taping me this really Afrocentric rap circa 1990, like Public Enemy and the X Clan yeah. um, and maybe Brand Nubian, things like that. Um, so it's funny that like 
I was, since we were living in a white area, I felt a little isolated from black culture and from blackness. And it's funny that like, that like this white kid was kind of my in. Um, he helped me find it. <laughs> uh, and you know, my parents are, have always, were always really permissive about what I was exposed to in terms of art and things like that. Um, so it was never like, oh, you're not allowed to listen to that. Uh, they were kind of iffy on public enemy because they had like a reputation for anti-Semitism when we were living around a lot of Jewish people, um, which that's complicated. I'm not sure what to say yeah. about that. Um, my parents are really permissive and always kind of encouraged me creatively. Um, and so when I was, I, I knew I loved music and wanted to have a band and like, you know, my dad bought me a guitar, bought me instruments. Um, and like, I started a band with a couple of my friends in eighth grade and they let us practice in, in our, in our living room, things like that. Um, but I think for actually, so I was mainly like a hip hop kid who was into skateboarding and then I got into punk through skateboarding, oh, okay. if that makes sense. Like I'd read yeah. Thrasher magazine and be like, black flag, I'm gonna check that out. And I'd take like my, you know, birthday money or something and go to um, like the mall record store and then be like, I'm gonna get the cheapest black flag tape. And then that turns out to be like some terrible EP from like 1987. Um, and I'm like, this is what black flag sounds like this. I can see you EP. This is not how they're <laughs> describing it in Thrasher. Like, wow, what an is, entry. Yeah, yeah. Or like I got a Bad Brain Spirit Electricity live, which is them playing a lot of stuff off of like um, Eye Against Eye, which is still a really good record, but it's not like the quintessential Bad Brains that would have like really electrified me. I liked it though. And I listened to it and just like, you know, really milked it for, or like just wrung it out to get every little drop of every little thing I could get from it. Cause you know, I didn't have the internet. It was before the internet and I didn't have other ways to find music. So I had to really like get the most out of it. Um, yeah. So that was kind yeah. of skateboarding was my path into punk. When we moved to Richmond, I started going to like DIY shows with some guys that I skated with. We lived in, I don't know how well you know the city. We lived in the fan district, which is like near VCU and west of downtown. Okay. Where I yeah. lived three blocks from the club that would be later called Strange Matter. We lived like up the oh, street okay. from there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so um, I guess to let you go in a, in a couple minutes, but uh, I really enjoyed your book, Zero Fade. Thank that you. you wrote a few years ago and i am working on black card um so far the couple pages i've read i can tell already that you know i i, I like the way you write which seems like a very simple way to put it but it feels conversational <laughs> and it it's like sometimes when i'm reading like i have i have an, I have an english degree um but there's certain things you write where i'm like oh boy that's going to be a lot of work you know like when you're reading it mm-hmm. uh, but i so i enjoy like you I feel like you write in a way that is like fun to read, uh, you know, but thank, no, thank you. I that's said ex- that better. No, <laughs> that, that's exactly what I'm going for. I, um, I, for the most part, I'm, I'm not a big fan of art that is intentionally difficult. I wish you know? your sentence just ended there. Like I'm not a big fan of art. <laughs> yeah. Like, stop there. Like, full stop. Like, like... But you know, so something that's intentionally difficult. Yes. It's like, you know, the payoff had better really be worth it for me to, to deal with this. And it often isn't. Um, yeah. So, and also, you know, my main rule of thumb when I'm reading, and I learned this in school at Columbia College Chicago, is like, read your work out loud. Just go one word at a time, hear it. And if it doesn't sound like, you know, it's, it's good to have something that's close to the sound of you talking. That sounds like something you might say in, you know, the best version of a conversation that you'd have. So I'll be reading yeah. my stuff out loud to make sure that it flows. And I want it to sound conversational. Um, and it's also that punk rock thing, you know, I'd rather hear a really, a really, really well-constructed song with two or three chords and hear a symphony. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think like a 
meaner way that I've said that kind of the same thing is like when I'm reading something, I I don't want to feel like I know that you got a degree. And you know, it's like it's <laughs> like you don't have to put all of your degree on the page. You they're not gonna take away your degree. You that's know, that's nice how sometimes putting... when I when I'm reading, like it's like I get that you did it, but I don't, you know, it, it's it's but it's funny that it, I feel like in a way it ties back to a lot of things we said about mm-hmm. Jay Dilla and you know just I guess growing up in punk and whatnot like it's you want something that like gives you a feeling and emotion and is not finger tapping yeah 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 yeah. so and I think also back to what you're saying I call it like when you can really see the writer at work on the page like that's how I think of it where it's like I can tell you're like you're like really trying to do a thing here and you might be doing it well but it's taking me out of the story like and that might just mean me being a writer and trying to pick apart what they're doing yeah yeah, and it's kind of like this was really written to get like people stroking their chins in the MFA workshop, you know? Yeah, it's it feels like, like when you're watching like a movie and you can feel someone really acting. Yeah, you know, and yeah. then it's like you're kind of taking me out of it. But you know, there's so many times where it's like someone might be putting that same amount of effort in, and you just don't see it. And I feel like they succeeded. And you could say the same with music and yeah. writing. Like you know, it's it could it could all be. I mean, you're black card and zero fade i think sometimes like a totally different point but i almost hate the term like y- like youth uh was it like young adult uh novels like ya yeah because it's sort of like potentially if i gave zero fade to someone i may tell them hey it's a young adult novel yeah and then it's, there's I a connotation to that you know well i think there's but, two kinds of young adult novels i think there's um you know young adult novels that are like a good book that happens to have a young narrator and is good for teenagers to read. Um, here's my cat again. And then there's also the ones where it's like an author who is like really trying to write for kids and it's not working. Like they're almost condescending to the kids or it's like that Steve Buscemi meme where he's got the skateboard and the backwards hat and he's like greetings fellow kids or whatever. <laughs> you know, you don't want to have like the greeting fe- greetings fellow kids YA. You want to have a good book that happens to have a teenager in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I guess before I let you go, where can people Thanks, find you? Well, th- thank you for taking the time to talk to me, Josh. Um, uh, Chris L. Terry uh, on you know Instagram and Twitter. Those are the two social medias I'm on the most. Though I made a New Year's resolution last year to look at Twitter more. And then this year I was like, I've never once been happier after I looked at Twitter. So I'm going to look at it less. But you can yes. find me on there and on Instagram, Chris L. Terry. And uh, Black Card is my most recent novel. You can find that uh, pretty much wherever books are sold. And I will say again for everyone listening, pick up both the books, pick up Zero Fade and pick up Black Card. Thank you. Hello there. We're Secret Jocks Podcast, three musicians who became even better friends through the love of NBA basketball. Catch us every Tuesday and Friday recapping the past week of NBA hoops and talking with other artists who share the same passion for the game. From the tour van to the hardwood, Secret Jocks Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks again to Chris Terry. Please check out both of his books, the newest one, Black Card, and also Zero Fade. Might I recommend ordering it from your local bookstore? Okay, so next week, we are chatting with Tim Crisp, the host of Better Yet Pod, as well as as You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio, which he hosts with former guest David Anthony, and 
rode to the Skeleton Coast with Brendan Kelly of Lawrence Arms. Really excited about this episode. We chatted about Bob Dylan's 1967 album, John Wesley Harding, and that led into tons of other great tangents. Big fan of Better Yet Pod and Tim Crisp. Good times. Okay, before I let you go, check us out on Patreon, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and just simply tell a friend. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for producing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. On that note, hit the theme! <laughs>